This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Yanji Denise, in for Catherine Cruz. Our guests in the studio are Dr. Tim Brown, internationally renowned infectious disease expert and senior fellow at the East-West Center, where he heads the center's HIV modeling team. His primary focus is on infectious disease modeling and its applications to public policy. Also here today, Dr. Scott Miskovich, a family medicine doctor and the founder of Premier Medical Group USA, responding to COVID in the U.S. and around the world. He has clinics here in Hawaii and in the southwest on the continent. He's also served as the COVID testing director for the U.S. Olympics. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us, Yanji. Great to be here. So today we are talking about long COVID, but I want to start with a look at how we are doing as a state when it comes to COVID-19 infections. So Dr. Brown, the Department of Health reporting this week, 858 new cases this week, along with six more deaths. But how reliable is that first number, given that so many people are now taking home tests or perhaps not testing at all? Well, I think that's one of the real challenges with the numbers that we're getting. They have been coming down consistently for about five weeks now. Uh, slowly, slower than they were coming down uh, after Christmas, for example. But the case numbers by themselves are actually decreasing over time, partly because the number of tests is also decreasing over time. And that trend has continued. Uh, They've gone down significantly in the last couple of weeks. So if we actually corrected for that in the case numbers, the case numbers this week would actually be flattening out. They wouldn't be continuing to decline. The positivity rate is probably a better indicator. And that has actually blipped up a little bit this week, which may be probably some follow-on from Easter because people were gathering together over Easter and so on. And so some of that may be reflected now, but then we'll probably continue, I I would assume we'll resume our downward trend over the next several weeks. So when we look at that, how much COVID is in our community? Quite a bit. I mean, we can't actually quantify that, but if you consider that at present, Uh, 7.9% of the tests that are being taken are coming in positive. That indicates there's still a very substantial level of COVID circulating in our community. And that means, and and all of us anecdotally hear reports of, oh, the office opened up and everybody got COVID. Okay, we know that's happening all over the place. You know, I've heard four or five reports of that sort in the last two weeks. So there's no question that it's still spreading very extensively in our community. Okay. And one of the consequences of that we know can be long COVID. Dr. Miskovich, we laid out that list of symptoms at the top. Can you tell us what is long COVID and how many people who contract COVID initially end up with long COVID? Uh, Yes, Yanji. First thing, um, I will clarify uh, long COVID. The the medical condition that we have to put on our papers and diagnose that is uh, post-COVID condition. So if you hear that, don't be confused. There are Uh, many, many different names that will fall under long haul, long COVID. But as you highlighted at the beginning of the show, you know, if I, since we're seeing uh, a lot of long COVID in the office, and I just saw patients this morning before I came, and I saw long COVID patients, number one is the fatigue. And just the, 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 just feeling wiped out at different time periods. Uh, Then the loss of the, uh, being able to, exercise or walk even just a block you know which are different stories fatigue is just resting and they're wiped out uh then the brain fog is very crucial uh, it, it's um it has so many different manifestations from concentration to mood very big change in mood with the individuals uh so you know we're seeing a lot of long covid it is uh 
you know, if you look at the data across the United States, it can be around 10%, which when you think about the number of people who've had the disease, that's an enormous number of people who are suffering with this disease right now. And then you translate that into our state. Uh, there are so many people also that are not even seeking treatment right now. And so, yeah, long COVID is making a very big impact in, in health care. And it's making a big impact in our employment market, which I think we'll talk about. But it's, uh, it's, it's sad, very sad. And for these patients, typically, how long does the condition last? You know, we say long COVID. How long are we talking about? Well, by definition, you know, uh, t typically we're going to be exceeding a couple of months before they're going to fall into that category. But uh, I will highlight a few issues that are important to highlight that if you've had, there are some subcategories now, if you've had your vaccination, you're less likely to develop long COVID. If you were treated with Paxlovid, less likely to develop. Um, we find that there's a little higher risk of developing long COVID if you were hospitalized and had more severe condition, or when you went and became hospitalized, or, you, or, or not hospitalized, where you had the pre-existing conditions. If you were overweight, diabetic, and had uh, respiratory conditions, you were more likely to proceed into those groups. So, you know, that emphasizes, again, to prevent long COVID, you know, there are options that you can have uh, to, to, to treat it. But um, that's, those are the most important things we're seeing right now uh, with at least um, the, the scary part is that so many people we're seeing are young, they're healthy, they have no pre-existing condition, they have absolutely no reason why they should have developed any symptom whatsoever. And that's what really bothers us when we look at this. I want to bring in some uh, an interview we did a little bit earlier with Danny DeGracia, who is a columnist for Civil Beat. He's written extensively about his experiences with long COVID. He got COVID in September of last year and said his initial infection lasted about 10 days. He felt like a bad flu was coming on, but almost immediately after recovering, his new symptoms set in. He felt very weak, had terrible joint inflammation, uncontrolled blood sugar spikes, and he says at times he could barely walk. I just felt you know, these terrible pains seizing uh, my body. And I was stuck in bed for an entire week and just could not get out. If you can imagine that, like no exaggeration, I literally was in bed, couldn't use the bathroom or anything for a week just because I was in so much pain. I, I really felt like I was um, a completely crippled and disabled person. It got to the point where, you know, for about um, maybe two months, I, I just, I could barely walk. I had to have family basically help me out. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time out of, out of work, you know, just at home. And it was terrible. That is a pretty harrowing experience that we're hearing there from Danny DeGracia. Dr. Brown, you know, Dr. Miskovich is saying roughly 10%. What are we seeing around the country and, and really around the world when it comes to long COVID trends? Well, I think actually, if you look at there are a couple of surveys that look at this. Uh, one is the Pulse Survey, which is conducted by the Bureau of the Census and the National Health uh, Statistics Center. And what they find is that those who've had COVID, about 30% report that they had long COVID symptoms. Uh, it's actually been declining a little bit in the last year, probably because last year we were dealing with the Omicron spike the Christmas before. 
that infected a huge number of Americans, uh, whereas more recently we've had smaller spikes. So the numbers are going down. Currently, as of January, which I think was the last Pulse survey, they put, or no, sorry, March was the last Pulse survey, about 28% were reporting that they had experienced long COVID of those who had been had a COVID infection. Of those, 17% had recovered. So there is recovery from long COVID for many people, but the other 11% had not yet recovered. So for some people, this is a long haul. For some people, this goes on for years. Uh, a colleague of mine has a son who basically developed long COVID in 2020 and is still dealing with the consequences at this point. He got infected very early in the epidemic. And yet to this day, he continues to deal with the consequences of long COVID. For, so, for some people, this is a life-altering experience that will affect them probably for the rest of their lives in some cases. Wow. Well, remember, you can join the discussion by calling us 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Dr. Miskovich, uh, for those folks who are experiencing this, like what Danny was detailing there, it just sounds very, very difficult. What are some of the treatment options for these folks? Um, Yenji, that's the problem. And, you know, Tim highlighted the numbers very, very well. When I refer to that 10%, I'm talking about the ones that are just really continuing on and on and on where it's a debilitating thing where they might not, you know, a large percentage of those might not even be able to return to work, maybe going into full disability. Um, the That's the problem. There is not a lot of treatment. Um, I will highlight probably in my experience, and this parallels the national uh, data, that one of the best things we're able to treat is the mood change, that there are some successful medications we can use to help with the mood change. Um, sleep has been very disruptive, so we can help treat the sleep. Uh, there are some things we're beginning to use for the severe inflammation, as Danny described, but that's not effective with everyone. Because remember, what we do know for sure about what causes long COVID, it's uh, an attack on our immune system. This is a severe attack, an autoimmune type of, uh, of attack on our body. And, you know, then if you go to the other things, you know, trying to get people back to getting some energy, it's really challenging because they're usually down for a prolonged period of time, they lose a lot of muscle mass, and then it's a real slow progress, and they can't overdo it. That's also very key. Don't try to rush back into exercise because that can have some detrimental effects. So it's a very gradual, you know, planned effect. Um, so those are the big symptoms. You know, we have some people with bowel symptoms that go on, and, you know, we, we treat those similar to inflammatory bowel disease. but uh, but. The most important thing I could say, it's individualized. Everybody will respond differently, and some people respond really well to some of the treatments, but in general, it's very customized and it's slow. Well, this is also not just a physical disease. This also takes a psychological toll as well. Let's hear from Danny now about, you know, he's since recovered, but he says that this had a really extreme impact on his mental health. It is basically like going through hell every single day. So in my particular case, you know, it just everything hurt. And, you know, there is a biochemical uh, response to that type of stress that, that affects other parts of your body. So, you know, when you're constantly having this massive um, cortisol response to being in pain day and night, it definitely affects your uh, your personal psychology. It also affects, you know, 
other organs. And it is something that I would not wish upon my worst enemy. That was probably the most agonizing and terrible moment in my life. Yeah, Dr. Brown, what are your thoughts on that? That this is, you know, not only a physical disease, but there also is the mental component of just being sick for a prolonged period of time. And also this, uh, you know, some people may not take this seriously or may think that, you know, like a lot of autoimmune diseases, you can't see that the person is necessarily ill. Um, so sometimes people are sort of denied that, that, that they even are sick. No, I, I think that's the human side of long COVID, which is very often neglected. And I think we really need to pay much more attention to that. Yes, to a great extent, people with long COVID are virtually invisible in society. They're invisible for a number of reasons, partly because they don't want to put themselves forward necessarily because so often they've been doubted when they said they were sick. They've run into problems in getting health care. You know, not every doctor is as enlightened as Dr. Miskovich in terms of actually recognizing that long COVID exists. And the problem with long COVID is that the majority of the standard tests which are done or available in hospitals and in healthcare settings do not pick up long COVID. You actually need to look at autoimmune markers. You need to look at inflammation markers. Those are the types of things that need to be explored and those aren't readily available in most settings. So the doctor can run a whole battery of tests and then he comes back and says, oh, you're fine. Nothing's showing up bad. And so the doctors themselves actually doubt it and then even in the research community, we now end up with a whole bunch of people who are trying to say, oh, it's all in their mind. And, you know, there's experience with this in the past. People with chronic fatigue syndrome have been dealing with this for decades. This doubt that they're actually sick, this, oh, they're just slacking off sort of attitude. And so it makes them pull inside themselves and they really don't want to be out. In addition, many of them are so seriously ill that they can't be out and about that much. That also increases the invisibility. And so, yes, I think, you know, the, and the other thing is just, we know from experience with HIV, how an HIV diagnosis changes somebody's life. Well, the long COVID diagnosis is the same way. You're never going to look at yourself the same way again because you've got to worry about what your future is going to look like. What are you going to have to be dealing with medically? Can you get good medical care? Can you get access to disability benefits? Because if you can't get an accurate medical diagnosis, you can't get on disability for long COVID. And so there are a host of problems that people living with long COVID face. We've got a caller on uh, line one right now. Mark from Kaneohe has a question. Mark, good morning. What's your question for the doctors? Good morning. So my, my question is, is kind of basic, but how is the diagnosis made? Is it on a persistently positive test? Uh, can a primary doc uh, make the diagnosis or how? Dr. Miskovich, why don't you take this one? Um, as uh, Dr. Brown just stated, there is no uh, blood test available for it. So it basically is a diagnosis made by history and, um, and by experience. So Basically, it's done by a detailed history. It's very interesting that you're asking that because I think we have another patient maybe talking to us thinking they had long COVID, but they never had a formal diagnosis and a formal blood test done or a, 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 a test so that, um, yeah, it, it's, it's done by history and it, it's done by experience. So there are some markers we can tell uh, that may show some inflammation or show some changes that might be uh, be there that we can point to, but they don't have to be there. 
Yeah, and you're referencing an email that we got from a caller who said that they believe they contracted COVID in March of 2020, so very early on, never was tested for COVID. Uh, fast forward three years, she writes in, I am learning to live with absolute exhaustion, post external fatigue and other symptoms. I've been denied entry, she says, to medical uh, attention for long COVID because she's never had a positive COVID test. What symptoms uh, relief is available to her? I mean, Dr. Brown, how would you advise someone like this? Well, I think you just have to keep pushing. I mean, the first thing I would recommend to her is probably get in touch with some of the online groups dealing with long COVID. There are a number of sites out there where people who are living with long COVID basically are learning how to negotiate the system, how to deal with it. Part of it is you're going to have to be your own advocate, which is difficult because you're also exhausted, you're tired, you're suffering from the impacts of long COVID. But in our medical system right now, I think you have to be a very aggressive in pursuing your own care. Because our medical system tends to try to shunt people aside, especially if they can't find a ready test that says, oh, you're long COVID. The doctors are probably gonna to try to push you aside and the bean counters in our healthcare system are also gonna push you aside because they don't wanna deal with the, the cost of long COVID. So I think you really need to be your own advocate and keep pushing, I think that's, all I can recommend at this point. We've got another caller. Ruth is calling in from the Big Island. Good morning, Ruth. What's your question today? Hi. Actually, it's just a comment. I want to thank you guys so much for this. And it's, the things that you're saying are so true in terms of the fatigue and and uh, the brain fog are the key long-term things. And the fact that your brain's not functioning properly, you'll also get bizarre, very erratic symptoms of um, I've got a lot of light sensitivity. I can get headaches. I get really un sorry, stomach aches that are unrelated to what I've had to eat or drink. And it's been six and a half months. Mine actually, um, I did not have COVID. I had an adverse reaction to the COVID bivalent vaccine, which was my fifth shot. And um, but it's a uh, really had an effect and I've joined a long COVID support group which has been really helpful it's, it's very important that advocating is 100% important and also then um, just uh, educating your family and friends that you're not faking it that um, you really uh, are doing the best you can and uh, it's very frustrating to not know not be able to make future plans Thank you so much for my that. My life, as I know it, is gone. So, I'm, and I'm so sorry to hear that, Ruth. Thank you so much for sharing your input this morning and for sharing your experience. You know, Dr. Miskovich, the brain fog that she's talking about. It's one thing, you know, you can kind of think about how you would treat yourself. Um, you know, or how you would be treated for physical ailments, but brain fog is so you know, individual specific and, and, and how do you clear one's head? Uh, how do you address the brain fog? Is there anything that can be done for that? Because we hear that again and again from people who are suffering from this. Uh, I'd like to highlight from experience a couple different things that people that are experiencing this will be able to relate to uh, because brain fog is kind of a general term. Number one is um, the ability to concentrate and focus the ability to do the things you used to be able to do before, whether it's read something effectively or, or comprehend even something as simple if you're watching the evening news. You know, it's, sometimes it's on, sometimes it's off. So 
uh, it's all relative to the individual comparing to what you're used to be able to doing to be doing quickly then accelerate that out if that was your employment if you had to do that all the time devastating because it's it's on and off then the other side is the emotional um, uh, liability where you're uh, you're so labile with your emotions and your thoughts and um, they, that will go up and down. It affects the people around you. And then those two things combine where you're so frustrated on one side about the concentration, then you're frustrated on the other side about being able to control your emotions. It leads to what Tim was just talking about, almost um, uh, uh, PTSD, a uh, depression, uh, just your whole outlook changes because you just have no control over those two things. Those are the bigger issues. Wow. Another issue, of course, uh, is what this means for us as a community, right? If we have this many people in our community who are suffering from this, uh, there are, you know, implications for our healthcare system. There are also impacts that you wouldn't necessarily think of. We spoke earlier uh, to Ruben Juarez over at UHERO. They actually have a cohort of 2,000 individuals that they're following longitudinally to measure the impact of COVID-19 in Hawaii. They started following that group in May of 2022. They're tracking health, social, and economic impacts across time. They released a report in January, and here's what's really interesting. Economics professor Ruben Juarez says one of the main findings was an association between long COVID and unemployment. So so despite the rate of long COVID being about 30% for employed individuals, unemployed individuals had a 47% rate of long COVID in November. And that was actually a five-point increase since May. So to put it in another way, those who reported long COVID in May were 6.3% more likely to be unemployed, and they were actually 7% more likely to be unemployed in November. So I think that one of the effects could potentially be you know, effects on employment. You know, I know, Dr. Brown, you're not an economist, but uh, this does have a ripple effect in our community, whether you are the one suffering from long COVID or not. No, it absolutely does. And it also is almost certainly contributing to the tight employment market right now because so many Americans are basically, I mean, Brookings Institute has estimated that there may be up to 4 million Americans out of the workforce now because of long COVID. That may have come down slightly in, in recent months, but nonetheless, that's still a very substantial portion of our workforce when employers are having an extremely hard time finding employees right now. Everybody knows the shortage of employees right now. Everybody's dealing with it. We deal with it at our workplace. So I think, you know, the, the impact that long COVID is having on the economy is real. Now, the other thing I want to stress, there's also an impact for that period when people have long COVID but recover. Because the average duration of long COVID, in at least a couple of studies, is typically about four months. And so those who are sick for four months and have prolonged symptoms are not going to be functioning at full efficiency. They're not going to be able to do their jobs as well. Many of them may be out sick quite often. And so that, of, that in and of itself, even though they recover eventually in many cases, they're still going to have an impact on the economy. It's very interesting that you say that also because we know here in Hawaii so many folks need a second job. Juarez says it's actually difficult to quantify the precise impact on Hawaii's workforce, but he did share this interesting trend that he's seeing anecdotally. You know, experiences that we are seeing and we are, you know, from talking with community is that people with long COVID, especially those who have like two jobs or they have extra hours on the second job, 
are potentially, you know, leaving the second job to be able to take care of their health. Now, UHERO does plan to follow up with those 2,000 individuals in the cohort in May to answer these questions more definitively. This is a very interesting program that they've got now, doing that longitudinal study. But, Dr. Miskovich, what are you seeing in your patients, uh, the ones with long COVID? We know that there's a range of, of, of symptoms, and some people are able to work. But, you know, are, are folks with long COVID able to still be part of the workforce? It depends on your symptoms and it depends on your job, but I would say those in that chronic 10% that go on uh, for that three, four month period are definitely not working. And, um, you know, basically the muscle fatigue and the concentration and the overall ability to sustain themselves. I mean, a typical person that are that's crossing over into this long COVID after three or four months, they got to take three or four times where they're lying down for an hour or two every day when they could have been working 12 hours a day or 18 hours. So uh, that's that's a major, major symptom uh, outside of the concentration. Uh, I do want to comment on the, the comments that Dr. Waters made that basically, too, we see a very special highlight in the medical workforce with that you know ability to continue working because there was another side to it, and that is the burnout that we experienced uh, throughout our medical force and the number of people in uh, medicine that did develop long COVID. It's put a special hammer into us being able to find staff. And, um, you know, then thinking that they're going to come back into the workforce, back into the COVID world when it's still here is just affects them psychologically. So big challenge. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We are discussing long COVID with Dr. Tim Brown and Dr. Scott Miskovich. You can join the discussion, too, by calling us at 1-877-941-3689. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. New York Congressman George Santos seems to have made up a lot of the resume he used to get elected. But regardless of whether he's lying or not, he still wins. He is clearly going to be a well-known celebrity regardless of what happens with his political career. How George Santos embodies the American dream. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. If you've got fresh ideas on how HPR can serve our islands, consider applying to join our Community Advisory Board. We're looking for diverse perspectives from across all islands. The feedback we receive from our advisory board helps us shape programming, events, outreach, and the future of HPR. Apply by May 31st at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com.
This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Yenji Denise in for Catherine Cruz today. Our guests in the studio are Dr. Tim Brown, infectious disease expert and senior fellow at the East West Center, and Dr. Scott Miskovich, physician and head of Premier Medical Group. Okay, gentlemen, so I think we've established just how serious this is, how much long COVID there is in our community, and that a lot of folks are suffering. Let's talk about the other side, which is prevention. How do we make sure that we don't uh, end up in this situation? Dr. Brown, uh, what are some mechanisms that we can we can look at to try to prevent getting long COVID? Well, I think it's the things that we've talked about for the last three years in this pandemic. First, don't get infected with COVID. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we've got a media machine, a political machine, all of which are telling you it's just a cold or the flu. As I think we've just discussed, it's clearly not just the cold or the flu. COVID is a systemic illness that can affect multiple organ systems within your body. So its damage goes far beyond just respiratory damage. And so you really don't want to contract this virus. What prevents it? Number one, get vaccinated. Okay. Like Dr. Miskovich was mentioning earlier, those who are vaccinated have a lower risk of developing long COVID, yet in this state, only 25.6% of people have had a booster or a vaccine within the last 12 months. That means the other 74% are at higher risk of long COVID than they need to be, and they can now get the booster. In fact, with the changes that the FDA made in regulations last week, those who are 65 and older can now get a booster at the four-month period. So those who got vaccinated last fall are eligible for another booster now, which will also give them more protection. We need to improve ventilation in our workplaces. We're not doing enough in workplaces and public spaces to make sure it's well ventilated, that there's a good flow through so that the virus can't build up. And that would go a long way, I think, toward reducing the amount of not just COVID, but other respiratory viruses in our workplaces. And then, of course, people just need to be careful. And especially when you're around Kapuna, when you're around people who you know are immunocompromised or have other issues, you need to protect yourself and keep yourself from getting infected so you don't pass it on to them. You become the vector that infects them. And that is something that, as a public health official, I could never accept that I'm responsible for infecting somebody else. Mm -hmm. To me, that's an abdication of my responsibility as a public health person. Dr. Miskovich, you know, we talk a lot about prevention. That is, of course, the best medicine. So in your estimation, you know, we are at this weird place where, on the one hand, a lot of us have COVID in the rear view. We kind of feel like we've moved on. Gatherings are back. You know, I've got two kids. I'm going to a million birthday parties. Um, you know, but on the other hand, you hear from the people that we've heard from today, this is a very serious illness. And, and so how do we navigate this period of the pandemic? Well, Tim highlighted some of the most important things, and we're we're really finding apathy towards vaccination. So I really wish across the United States, and believe me, I, I focus on the federal government, which has dropped the ball for sure in this whole pro the whole process. That we need to highlight the importance of getting the vaccination. I want to add on to what Tim just said, and that is. The mask, you know, getting a very good uh, KN95 and 95 mask that fits appropriately and you wear it appropriately. I'm so disappointed in our federal government has never taken the time to show people how to wear a mask and, and emphasize it because, you know, we still use masks in our office and I see patients coming in 
and I always re-educate them as my staff would be, I'll bet you maybe one out of five wear a mask appropriately, to say the, to say the least. Um, but it goes back to that. And then, you know, you mentioned Yanchi uh, treatment, which is we do not see enough uptick of the Paxlovid, and that is a very effective medicine, and it has so many things it can reduce as time goes on, so getting Paxlovid if possible. Yeah, Dr. Brown, I know that you're pretty passionate about Paxlovid for callers who are, main, or uh, listeners rather, who may not be familiar with this medicine. Uh, it's a pretty short window on when you can take it. Can you tell us a little bit about what your suggestions are for people uh, when it comes to getting this medicine and when to take it? Well, typically, you know, Paxlovid needs to be taken within five days of developing symptoms. Now, one of the gating factors on Paxlovid is you have to get a test first. Okay, so you basically need to know that you have COVID. And one of the problems we've got right now, especially with the decline in availability of testing, there are no public spaces where you can get tested now. People are testing at home, but more often than not, I think they're just not testing at all anymore. If you are in one of those higher risk classes, elderly, over 65, actually over 50, the, the mortality starts to go up when you're over 50 with COVID. Uh, if you're immunocompromised, if you've got underlying conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, and so on, then you need to be testing even if you get the sniffles. You know, if you get any respiratory symptom, you need to be testing for COVID, and then you need to get on Paxlovid right away. And the problem is with people not testing anymore, with tests no longer being available right now through today, you can still get them free at your healthcare, at your insurance company, your healthcare provider. That goes away on May 11th. You can no longer get reimbursed for the home test. So it's going to be much more difficult. People are going to be out of pocket 25 bucks every time they need to buy a couple of tests. And that's going to, I think, further restrict the willingness of people to test, which means a lot of the elderly, a lot of the immunocompromised who need to test will not be able to get those tests, and therefore they won't be able to get Paxlovid. Let's go to a caller now. Thomas from Honolulu is calling us this morning. Thomas, thanks for calling in. What's and your this question? Is Thomas. I'm still waiting. Hi, Thomas. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question is, I was diagnosed with uh, COVID in July of last year. I've been uh, suffering with long COVID, especially extreme fatigue in particular and muscle aches. Um, my doctor recently began treating me with um hydrocortisone because he mentioned that they are looking at uh, fatigue relationships with long COVID and uh, mononucleosis. Um, uh, disease back in the 70s and 80s. I wanted to ask the doctors their opinion about that approach. Thank you. Dr. Miskovich, what, is your, what are your thoughts on that? There is some crossover that we're seeing, things like um, Epstein-Barr and some long-term uh, uh, conditions that your doctor is referring to. Um, that may be uh, a, a short-lived response. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of great long-term broad studies that show that putting someone on a, uh, a steroid, which that is, will help for the long-term symptoms. Um, I'm not sure what your dosing is right now, uh, but that's uh, it, it's if it's monitored and watched appropriately, it's, I don't have any opposition to it at this point, is what I would say. Uh, we do have a, a medication that we're using that uh, there are a few studies that does the same thing, a little different angle, and it's called naltrexone, and it's in an ultra-low dose, and that has had a couple of clinical trials 
that have supported it for use for the long-term inflammation. And that's what your doctor is targeting, is targeting uh, the inflammation and would love to hear how you do, you know. So I would say probably kudos for your doctor for trying and considering it. And um, it's just another angle and you're far enough in, it's, it's, uh, it's okay. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, Dr. Miskovich, is just that it's so uh, individual specific, but it's also so provider specific, right? So that if you're with a doctor who is really up on the research and really focused on this, you may get one course of treatment. If you're with a primary care provider that is not as focused or, you know, maybe seeing too many patients, whatever the reason, uh, you could get a different course of treatment. There's no uh, real guideline to follow, it feels. That's exactly right, uh, Yenji and I do want to highlight this. The uh, National Institute of Health, uh, we're two years into the recover trial. 1.2 billion federal dollars has been spread across uh, the United States at major, major high-quality institutions. And the whole goal was to try to find out how can we stop and treat long COVID. And guess what they found? Nothing. There's no single answer with all of these. There's some things that are coming up, but there's no big single answer. So I think what you said is very, very key. It's individualized. And again, this uh, patient just had a doctor, which, like I said, I give him credit because he has been following some of the studies and data to even come up with that. So yeah, it is very individualized treatment. And I would say a large portion of our medical community is not really involved with COVID at all and has just shut it out. Dr. Brown, I see you nodding over there. I, I think that's the fundamental problem here, is we don't have a comprehensive research program on treatments. I mean, there are little studies being done here and there, but drug studies are expensive for one thing. And so there's a tendency not to fund as much of that. So in fact, I think most of the recover money has gone into looking at more of the underlying causes of long COVID and so on, which is of course necessary, but not as much has been focused on actual treatment. And I think what we really need is a lot more attention being paid to treatments that work. Some of that will come out of the medical community itself. Those doctors who discover, you know, when they're trying things that this works for them. And then, but then that also needs to be put into a long-term study that can then be translated into a recommendation. So I think, you know, that's our problem right now. We need much more research on treatment for long COVID. And, and one of the things Dr. Miskovich did mention was masks, uh, but we do see, you know, May 11th, everything sort of changes, and we see hospitals, uh, even, you know, a, a large hospital group in our own community this week saying that masks are no longer mandatory in a medical setting. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts on that are it's a complete abdication of responsibility uh, for public health. Uh, you should not be in a waiting room with people who have COVID. And the problem is you don't know who has COVID. People with COVID are not sitting out there and coughing all the time. In fact, the majority of infections with COVID are asymptomatic, but they're shedding virus like crazy. So you can be sitting in a waiting room and nobody in there is coughing. Nobody has any symptoms, but there's tons of COVID in the air. And so to take off masks in that setting, especially given that hospitals are where those at highest risk of severe COVID illness go, the elderly are disproportionately in hospitals, those who are immunocompromised, those who have diabetes, those who have high blood pressure, those are the people who use these healthcare facilities at a much higher rate than the general population. And so to put them into a situation where they can get infected with COVID is just insane. It makes no sense whatsoever in the modern era that any waiting room has people without mask in it. 
You know, what I find interesting, too, when Dr. Miskovich, one of the things that you sort of laid out at the top was when we're looking at who gets long COVID, we talk about folks who are at higher risk. Um, but what I think a lot of folks may not realize is that if you have, you know, what's considered a, you know, a secondary condition that can make you more at risk of long COVID, uh, we're talking about a simple, you know, as something as simple as being overweight, which unfortunately many of us are. Exactly. Um, That's such an understated uh, point when we talk about other conditions that are highlighted with the uh, CDC and the FDA, even in allowing us to give a vaccination six months after the original. It's people need to understand that obesity has jumped way up on the list as something that leads to the things we're trying to prevent, which is hospitalizations and death. And when we start to target some of the people that have died below, we all know that 60s, 70s, 80s are are really disproportionate, 80% of the deaths in the country. But when we target, you see the dates, the deaths of people in their 20s and 30s and 40s, and they also have like a little asterisk, have other health conditions. Obesity is a big one, you know, and respiratory conditions are a big one. So uh, people need to understand that, you know, smokers, you know, with the things that can happen with the lungs are very crucial, very important. Remember, you can join the discussion, too, by calling us 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Dr. Brown, please, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just let me add one thing to what Dr. Miskovich just said. It's actually interesting. The Department of Health, I just discovered this yesterday on their dashboard, they now actually added an indicator, which is the percent of population on every island that has underlying conditions that predispose them to severe COVID. And across the islands, the numbers are between 34 and 35 percent of the entire population have underlying conditions. So it's, it's not an uncommon thing throughout our population. So I'm wondering, once long COVID is gone, you know, you've had all of these symptoms and you do make a recover, like Danny DeGrazio we spoke to, he says that he's pretty much back to normal. Um, Once long COVID is gone, is it really gone? Meaning what kind of uh, system damage has that done to suffer through all of those months of illness? What are you seeing in people who have recovered is there are there any lingering effects? Wow, that's um, what a terrific question and what a, I guess um, uh, a scary and concerning point. Uh, Tim will know this because we we both communicate almost daily and we study this all the time. We just had a pretty big study that was reconfirmed this week that shows that the autoimmune conditions are increasing on average, what, 45 to 40% relative to the non-COVID population. That's almost any. So you could get lupus and different types of arthritis and Sogren syndrome. There's a whole category. You and I talked about this in another venue that you have an increased risk versus the normal population of going on and getting insulin-dependent diabetes due to an immune effect on your body. Uh, Within the first year of having covid you're going to have an increased risk of heart attack, stroke, and uh, effects to your blood vessels and blood clots. And then there's other questions we don't know, and I don't want to be scaring people. I just want to be honest. We know that these people have, um, like women, will have uh, menstrual changes. Uh, Men are having decreased uh, sperm counts uh, associated with it. We don't know what the long-term fertility effects will be, so that's always going to be a question. Then the other issue is, Again, not to scare people, we're all studying medically what's the long-term cancer risk. Will there be changes in cancer risk 
that will occur with these people. We don't know. Time will tell a lot of these things. I mean, that's, Dr. Brown, what's so challenging about this because we're kind of building the car as we're driving it here. Well, I think we're building the car as we're driving it, and the problem is we don't know what's 2,000 miles down the road. And that's the problem. What's happening now could end up affecting us 10, 15 years out, may predispose us to illnesses that we might not have otherwise developed. But we don't know that at this point because we don't have long-term cohorts. We don't have long-term studies looking at that. So I think that's the real challenge. And what's different about COVID from virtually every other respiratory virus is this one can affect virtually every body system. It uses an ACE2 receptor. That's the thing it latches onto in your cells. And that receptor is expressed on virtually every, every cell type within the body, in your hearts, in your blood linings, in your kidneys. So all of these systems basically are at risk of a prolonged infection with COVID. So we don't know what those long-term effects are going to be yet, and we won't know probably for a couple of decades. You know, Dr. Miskovich, I, th I suspect that some people listening today might say, I don't want to hear this. I want to go back to normal. I know that I personally, you know, I mentioned that we're going back to birthday parties and all that. I love seeing people. It's Hawaii. I love giving everybody, you know, a, a honey and a hug. That's how we do it here. And so do you, I'm, I'm just interested in your own life. Do you go to restaurants? Do you go to that birthday party? Are, do you go to events or are you still living where we were maybe two years ago in terms of your risk assessment and, and how you navigate the world right now? I'm uh, still living in the risk assessment. I, I, I wear my mask when I'm at Safeway, and I find that sometimes I'm the only one in there with <laughs> it. Uh, wear my mask when I'm around strangers in poorly up. I'll like take a mask off in an outdoor event where there's ventilation, and I'll be careful where the ventilation is. I can take the mask off when I'm walking or hiking or doing some things like that. Um, my daughter is getting married in 10 days, so I'm going to be at a wedding, and my wife and I were arm wrestling over masks for that just yesterday, and I believe I'm going to have to take the mask off for the wedding. You know, it's, a, it's an event. So, uh, no, I'm still being very careful, and I would advise um, – let me, let me categorize this. Fortunately, we know the teens on up through the mid-30s, if you're low-risk – uh, the, the, the data is showing you probably have quite low risk of being hospitalized or going um, into having any severe, and that's why there is even question mark of ongoing vaccinations for that group in, in some of the findings. But you have to understand what risk is. And and that's the the people that should be wearing the masks. Yeah, and you know, just so that our audience understands, before we came into the studio today, the three of us, you know, we did rapid tests before we came in yesterday and this morning to make sure that the three of us were negative. Uh, that goes to your point that those ma those tests I got those free from uh, Uncle Sam, and uh, and those are going to be running out. But you know, same question to you, Dr. Brown. Uh, how do you navigate life right now? Because you do want to get back. You know, none of us. Uh, liked that time, or, or I would say the most of us didn't, but perhaps some did, uh, of, of being so locked down and being so isolated. There's a cost to that, too. Well, I'm still cautious. You know, I, I think, like Dr. Miskovich was saying, yes, if you're younger, the risks are substantially lower. But when you get into my age range, I'm 68, then the risks are going up pretty substantially. I'm also overweight, so that's absolutely an issue for me. Uh, so I am still very careful. We still do takeout if we want food from restaurants. Okay, I still wear the mask in all public settings, you know, whether I'm in 
Times supermarket or whether I'm at the office, I'm still wearing a mask, except in my office, but then in my office I have a HEPA filter. And we also have improved the ventilation within our building to improve it, including ultraviolet lights within some of the system. So, you know, the East-West Center has gone out of its way, basically try to reduce the COVID risk in the workplace as much as possible. But even with that, I only actually work in the office two days a week. I'm mostly still working at home. So, yeah, I'm still, if you will, living in the bubble, being cautious, because I know what the consequences of getting this thing can be, especially at my age. And so I really want to be careful about that. We are just about out of time, but I want to give each of you a moment to share a final thought. Dr. Miskovich, what advice are you leaving our audience with today? We had uh, a great talk, and it's always great talking with you, Yunji, and thank you and congratulate you on how much you have done to step up to tell the public. So I, I want to say that first. But I think we've covered it. Please still get your vaccinations. That's number one. Please wear a good quality mask and uh, take care of your kapuna. Get them to get this. To, even if they're in a skilled nursing home, take them to get their vaccination. And then finally, um, don't forget, we have just great response with Paxlovid. And I have never had a patient. I have not been able to get Paxlovid. Even if they're on other medications, we can make modifications of them. So get the treatment if possible. Dr. Brown, your final thoughts this morning. I actually have two final thoughts. I think the first final thought I want to give is that the new normal is not the old normal. Okay, there are fundamental differences between now and pre-2020, before COVID. We have a pathogen that is circulating in the community at substantial levels all of the time. COVID is out there. Like I say, you know, 7.9% across the state positivity in the latest testing. It's extremely transmissible, and that's why it's circulating at such a high level. But it also can be transmitted by people without any symptoms at all. That wasn't true of previous respiratory pathogens. And it can induce severe levels of illness in the older part of the population and those who have those underlying conditions, immunocompromised, diabetes, et cetera. And so it's not the old situation we had in 2019. And those people who are in those categories, I think, still need to continue to be very cautious. And so I, I really recommend, you know, the vaccines, the masking, et cetera. The other thought I want to leave is about people with long COVID. Ed Yong, who writes for The Atlantic, wrote an article recently on long COVID, and he said, the people who still live with COVID are being ignored so that everyone else can live with ignoring it. And I think that sums up the situation very well. We want to thank our guests this morning, Dr. Scott Miskovich of Premier Medical Group and Dr. Tim Brown of the East West Center. We thank you, of course, the listener as well, for joining us on today's show. Do you have a comment to share about today's show? Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can also send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you'd like to listen back to today's show, check out the conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Yenji Denise in for Catherine Cruz. Tomorrow, We've got a Hana Ho show featuring local grinds. Join us then for more of The Conversation.